thanks everybody for coming here. Now, it's no secret by now, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate those people. And there are times, there are times when I look at people, I, I see nothing worth liking. I, I want to earn enough money that I can get away from everyone. And it's, it's because I see the worst in people. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. And I've built my hatred up over the years, little by little. And while speaking to all of you here gives me a, a second of breathe, I can't keep doing this. Not on my own and not with these people. These people who say, I have no right. No right to control so much, they say. That, that I'm bending the will of so many to serve my own ends. But, but what, what do these people know about the world and what it would have been? Do, do they think that we would have been better without all of this? Do they remember the world before me? Before the company? Do they remember what we all thought the future was going to be? And how dark and dreary it felt without innovation, without progress? No. And yeah, maybe they didn't ask for this. Maybe, just maybe, they were satisfied with their tiny lives. But I asked for this because I'm doing it for them. We are doing it for them because we understand, we know the truth, right? We know that reality conspires against us and it constricts us and it limits us in a million different ways. It constricts them too, if they would only remember it. We struggle for them. We struggle against reality so that we can all be something much greater. So yes, you're here today because some of them are resisting, because some of them are saying very loudly, the system may be able to achieve our ideals, but what about the voices of those it silences? As if we just go around silencing voices, as if those voices are being denied for anything other than a good reason. And as if looking down on them is any worse than blaming those of us who are burdened with making the system work. I say to everyone here, let's let them continue to struggle against us. All it can do is legitimize this beautiful thing we've built. Every blow that they strike will do nothing but harden our resolve. In every great indignity, or moral grievance that they invoke, it only highlights the urgency of our project. Yes, they may say that they have dreams. We all have dreams. But simply having a dream does not give you the right to realizing it. To believe otherwise is, is, is so below what it means to be a human, I struggle to call them people. 
And if I must, and we have to be honest with ourselves, the world and the people in it are never going to be what we want them to be if we let them choose. So it's time that we stop letting them choose for their own sake, for their own good. We'll win their hearts and their minds. We'll break their spirits. We'll reforge them from the animals that they are into people. And then we'll listen. Who cares if their hatred flows every single day? Who cares if they look up at the stars at the ring and the colonies and the habitats and the seasteads and the moon bases? Who cares if they look up at that with disgust? I don't. We are doing everything for them. We are moving towards the future for them. And for us, that is what matters. And I hope that as you listen to all the other speakers we have today, you'll remember that. And that when you leave here, you'll go forth with the words that we've left you with and help us continue to move towards that future. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 36 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, today we're joined by a, a very special guest who's been a long time coming for TMK. It's co-host and showrunner of Trash Future, Riley Quinn. Hello, Riley. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. It is great to be here on TMK uh, to talk about, I am sure, uh, how finally Bitcoin is going to make our lives better. All right. And, <laughs> and how Tether is definitely uh, fake. It's a fake lawsuit by the New York Attorney General. Okay. I'm honestly, I, 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 I don't fully, I mean, I have, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I've not bothered to learn, but uh, I don't fully understand the, the tether thing. Is that what, is that like, is that a derivative of the Bitcoin to Bitcoin USD exchange rate? What's going on with that? Yeah, the idea seems to be that this company controls like the ability to exchange dollars for USDT and claims that it's all backed up by like on a one-to-one uh, with dollars, but that it's not that at all. And so they just kind of print USDT to provide liquidity for Bitcoin exchanges and are using it to pump up their own holdings and to accumulate more uh, Bitcoin. Okay. So, but th this isn't going to affect um, my ability to buy a Lamborghini because I tried to like buy a dime <laughs> bag of weed in 2012. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> How come, okay, how come you never hear stories about Bitcoin whales who were like, yeah, I was just really, really, I was a po trying to be the pioneer of my university town of getting fucked up. You know, mm -hmm. I was trying to get that pure fish yeah. scale. And um, now, you know, now I own three boats. You never hear about guys like that. It's always assholes like uh, Balaji's or whatever. You think it's because like maybe they got into, like they, they were like, all right, uh, I'm going to get some boats. And then they're like, but, oh, maybe I could actually get, like, fish scale <laughs> and then run it into boats. <laughs> so we're saying that what happened was is that all is that all of the Bitcoin whales who were just, like, some, like, lads trying to, like, get on it and, you know, exchange small business ideas with one another deep into the night now are all, um, what, like, Russell Group Scarface? 
Sorry, yeah. that's only one, something the UK <laughs> listeners will get. But no, but that, there we go. It's that, or it could also be like uh, Marty from uh, Ozarks. You know, this another. That's all them now. Like Marty I mean, in there his was free time a, has a rig. There was like a B plot in Ozarks where his son was like doing crypto. And oh like, yeah, it's like <laughs> teaching him how to do crypto to uh to launder money. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, there's uh there's an episode where the beginning's like how to launder money. <laughs> you know how to you gotta wash it. You gotta make it used uh, over and over. You gotta build legitimate businesses and now get tether and to get invested in tether. Maybe become a tether executive and then you can launder as much as you want. Quick funny story for you guys. When I was in high school, we had a exchange student from Germany and when he came over, his parents gave him something like two grand to live off of. I mean, this was in 1996. So, uh, but they sent him to the States with two grand to last him for the school year. And uh, the first thing that he did uh, was find someone to sell him a pound of weed for like $600. So he did that <laughs> and became the, uh, the party kid you were talking about earlier, who just like sold everybody drugs. So when he went back to Germany, he went back with more money than he came with. Last That's time I heard American from him, American capitalist excellence. But what happened was, last time I talked to him, I was friends with him on Facebook until 2018, in which mm -hmm. he deleted his Facebook. He was sending people links, and he was using those links to try to get into people's computers and mine them for Bitcoin. Last time I heard from him, and then he, I haven't heard from him since. Uh, I want to hear. I want to hear everything. I want to hear all of his opinions. <laughs> it sounds like someone whose opinions I, I am desperate. I want to know uh, everything about what he thinks. I want to know what car he wants to get. I want to know. I want to hear his opinion of uh, did the U.S. presidential election actually happen? Uh, I want to know, like, I, I want to I know if he, it, we, what does he think all the main political problems are now? What, what was the greatest comedy of the last 10 years? Just some, mm -hmm. like someone who has the entrepreneurial spirit to be like, I'm just going to flip like two grand. <laughs> The, well, the, uh, to go back to Germany with extra money, but also whose main interactions with the internet have just been like, I don't know, like playing Farmville and posting <laughs> yeah. people Bitcoin scams. Like, I am desperate to know this person. I, I could tell you his favorite comedy was Step Brothers because yes. he would not stop fucking posting YouTube videos. <laughs> uh, but maybe, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Click don't get on me this wrong. link. It's... We'll have so much more room for activities. <laughs> yes. So I think that that's where his brain was going with that. But he was definitely one of those, uh, you know, sending people Farmville invites. And all of a sudden he's like, please get involved in my investing program uh, we, that I have never, here. We've never talked about Zynga uh, on, the, on, the, on, on TMK. And I feel like that would be a really good retro episode. Going back mm. to talking about like Farmville and that first yep. generation of those kinds of like total scam social, social gambling websites. My old flatmate ended up dating the president of Zynga. Oh, all right. Well, hey. we're we're get we're getting you back on the pod <laughs> to talk about Zynga in the future. It was so, after she so, moved to San Francisco. <laughs> so when I introduced Riley as importantly the showrunner of of Trash Future, what you just saw there was was showrunner excellence, where mm -hmm. Riley just turned TMK into a mini Trash Future episode by <laughs> by, by taking charge of the mics and wrangling us about bitcoin <laughs> which is straight. not what this episode is about <laughs> and anytime anytime you invite another showrunner onto your podcast it's always like they have to square off a little bit for a while 
you know yeah, we got to um old western tunes in the uh, background the yeah dust- sizing each other up <laughs> And and, right. and Riley was quicker on the draw there in terms of. <laughs> what we've really brought Riley on TMK to talk about is so for a while now Riley uh, has has gained a well earned reputation for being one of the only people to read many of these like big idea books by thought leaders and and then forcing uh, all the people on Trash Future um, plus often Felix Biederman of Chapo Trap House on the Intelligence X series to listen to him recap the insane um, ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. to do phrenology on the thought leader brain, uh, to polish it into, into, you know, just a smooth oval stone. That has caused Riley to have this wealth of knowledge uh, <laughs> about the things that thought leaders write that are clearly not intended to actually be read in, in any kind of way. Can you give us a little bit of recap on uh, this this journey of into hell that you've put yourself through? <laughs> All right, so basically, number one, if you want to talk about a journey, uh, uh, Matt Ridley, uh, his brain is the author of uh, Why Ideas Have Sex, I believe it's called. Or uh, I love that. <laughs> or it's it, no, That was his main concept. It's called something else. Uh, his brain is the opal from Uncut Gems. Uh, it is there entire. You see this shit, man. That's there family. Is entire universes unfolding and collapsing in on themselves at once. And the problem is, right? Well, a lot of these thought leaders, like they had their heyday in the period from like two thousand, from like when Freakonomics was written. Like Malcolm mm-hmm. Gladwell's early. Like, thing is we we've done a few books in this series we've done Stephen Pinker of Malcolm Gladwell we've done Matt Ridley we did uh, Sunstein and Thaler we've done a few others um the those are the four main ones that that we've done but we always touch on these people all the time different ones and the heyday of this kind of thinker was very much like post financial crisis but not just that but post free economics because the idea was like there were these big problems that we had to solve and we were always looking for that one weird trick to solve them, preferably without having to do politics. And the whole, I'd say the whole sort of baseline idea of a book like Freakonomics is um, that everything is counterintuitive and the reductive, the, the logic is very reductive. It is the idea that these very small contextual changes are able to sort of produce broad-based social outcomes so mm-hmm. these might be sort of you know making sort of spurious correlations these might in, this might involve sort of um like in the in the nudge books sort of um like like anti-politics of libertarian paternalism um the and, and or or in many cases just um kind of sort of fatuous uh pseudoscience to like you know deny that say there are problems with externalities in capitalism, for example, like uh, Mm -hmm. Steven Pinker or Matt Ridley. But the whole point, really, at base, at the end of the day, is to sort of advance an ideology of sort of, um, that's almost like, you know, the the medieval scholastics uh, Mm -hmm. were famous for sort of, you know, debating how many angels could dance upon the head of a pin. These Mm -hmm. ideas that were um, sort of so lofty and so abstract and, and that were at such sort of minute detail as to largely be discussed for the sake of their discussion. 
and the thought leader book such as it is is it, it's a book that exists for many reasons it advances an ideology of um you might say minute the investigation of minute details so that you don't look up and see the big details it also it, it exists uh because it fits in as well with the sort of neoliberal idea of the university that you must publish these big books that they must be sum upable in an article that can be published in or an excerpt in the guardian or the times that you may then end up with um your promotional material sort of taken care of and you can become a minor celebrity and your job mm -hmm. is to basically be interesting in an economy where interestingness and contrarianism are largely conflated. And so you're basically a professional shithead, but yeah. <laughs> you have extraordinary manners mm -hmm. and you're also sort of very prestigiously educated in things that turn out to be largely, you know, trivial or sophistic. I remember, so like my old housemate, I feel like we've all had different encounters with these kinds of big idea books and these thought leaders. But I remember my old housemate, because I'm a uh, quote unquote intellectual, because I'm an academic and, and all of that. My housemate was was one of these like um, dumb guy, smart guys, the, the <laughs> kinds of people who read these books, right? Like these books are meant to be read by dumb guys so that they can think that they are smart guys because yeah. they read Sapiens um, or because they read Guns, Germs, and Still. And so my, my housemate would read these books and then like corner me and lecture me about their like, you know, reductionist, speculative, hackneyed theories, um, mm -hmm. as if they are these revelations that explain everything, mm -hmm. right? According to my housemate, the whole understanding of capitalism um, is that like, you know, some countries had property rights and allowed credit, uh, which oh, then <laughs> growth. Um, and then they also had money, which is actually just a form of trust. Um, and the countries that had these things succeeded. And then the countries that didn't have those things uh, failed. And that was that was the whole explanation for why some countries succeed and why some countries fail. Matt Ridley in his book, sorry, I just, while you were saying this, I burst into like a, a Proustian reverie burst into my head how <laughs> Matt Ridley describes this in his book, The Rational Optimist. It's that social capital is not, it's not just um, like education and degrees. It's also, quote, courts and Christmas. What the fuck does that yes. mean? <laughs> like Mexico doesn't, Mexico doesn't have Christmas or dependable courts. And that's why, um, oh that's why you need to outsource a bunch of jobs to them. So looking at the economic situation of a, a society really as a thing that needs to be explained with reference to other underlying categories, so it takes as fixed categories like, you know, uh, access to credit or, or, or laws or whatever, and then uses all of that to explain a level of development, which again, it just sort mm -hmm. of starts from an arbitrary place, right? Like if you started counting in, you know, 300, you've, you look, you have a very different set of conclusions than if you start counting in 1700. And, and, and but really what they're, what they are doing. So someone like Jared Diamond, for example, right, he's... He, he's looking at like uh, saying, okay, well, we have to explain why, you know, like Papua New Guinea doesn't have, you know, airplanes or whatever. For him, something like imperialism or colonialism, it's largely just the process by which the actual explains, um, which is just like, if your continent is lateral or vertical, um, if you come from a land that's separated by many mountains and rivers and all, geography, basically. And then yeah. his explanandum is 
all of the actual processes that have actually made all of this stuff actually happen. So it's sort of, it's a sleight of hand that works on people who either aren't paying attention or who are much more interested in being comforted. Thinking about the flow on effects of these books as well, I don't think anything has done more in human history to produce just the most like mundane, boring ass thinking in people who think that they actually understand the way in which the world works. You know, it would be one thing if it was just like my housemate reading these books and then lecturing me about them and then just me being annoyed and then going back to playing like Zelda or something like, all right, like whatever, dude, like in one ear, out the other. But the problem is, is that like, yeah, on one hand, like these books aren't meant to be read, but that's because the arguments in the books are summed up to actual like policymakers in like TED Talks and in like Guardian op-eds. And so like that you don't have to read these books because the big idea can be summed up in a five minute TED Talk, which then some policymaker hears and thinks, oh, okay, now I also understand society with a capital S. Mm -hmm. and, and now I understand how to fix society, right? It's geography, or it's nudges, or it's credit, or whatever. I think the, the key thing, and especially nudge is the worst one for this, right? Mm -hmm. Because nudge came along in 2008, and said to, you know, the um, incoming sort of uh, Obama administration and then slightly later the like Cameron's premiership in the UK and said hey here is a way that you can govern without governing you if you want society to be this like your sort of Schumpterian or Hayekian sort of self self-perpetuating machine of free exchanges where um, that are nevertheless sort of optimized and you think the work of government is to optimize that what we have done is we have given you a way to tinker with that machine without having to actually do anything like i, I genuinely do think it it's no coincidence that it, it is chicago boys in the 70s it is chicago boys in the late yeah. 2000s that mm -hmm. are sort of exporting these like you know uh, quite but it's all these quite sort of you know horrible in different ways economic mm -hmm. models but it's the it's the tragedy and farce version of the chicago boys right. where you know in the 1970s we were exporting you know um essentially the ideology of pino uh, the extremely effective but very evil ideology of pinochet <laughs> and then in the 2008 the same area the same ideology is exporting sort of a um is, 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 is trying to sort of nicen that up and is essentially saying our new version of, of the Chicago boys is um, we're going to turn cigarettes around in the shelves so people don't smoke them. <laughs> we are still not going to fund any kind of public health care. And in fact, on the smoking issue, Malcolm Gladwell, noted uh, brain, brain book author, um, does have a history of saying actually smoking is good because it makes people die younger so they're less expensive to take care of. Oh, Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. I mean, yeah, this reminds me of like just anecdotes in general, people who like truly for them economics is the way to view it. Like they shouldn't wash or clean up after themselves because like someone else has a job to do it and it's worth more for them to do their job than them to do their job that's right? maddie you know iglesias yeah. um, with these sorts of ideas i'm curious like you know when they were coming along did the financial crisis complicate the burgeoning attempts by like tech thought leaders to offer technology as um this sort of like eschaton that would fix it feels like no, it wasn't wanted at all yeah yeah, if anything, the the because what, what this what the financial well the financial crisis was, you know, sort of like a, a hydra. It had sort of as many effects as it had um, 
as as many people as it reached, it had that many effects. And I, I think the the way to, the way I understand sort of technology is coming out of the financial crisis is, again, you have a few sort of key strains here. Ideologically, you have this idea that um, that government must be achieved uh, sort of intelligently. That is to say, with the application of minimal pressure to the exact right point to cause maximum effect. Everything was being very sort of carefully budgeted for. And the idea of technology, the promise of technology at the time was that these are uh, the problems we are solving are technical ones. They are, uh, we, we, are lo- we are basically in the business of identifying and optimizing processes. Um, and, and additionally, right, you know, when you have something like, okay, you'll use the example of universal credit in the UK. I think that's right. a good one. Universal credit was, is this, again, highly sort of technologically enabled um, government program. What it is, is there, there used to be a whole bunch of different benefits you got in the UK. You'd get job seekers allowance. You would get a housing benefit. You would get various other benefits, maybe four or five. And then you'd have to like, you know, and they would come in at like different points in the month and, and so on and so on. It's quite chaotic. Um, what universal credit did was they said, this is you know, crazy. And to, to be fair, it was, it was crazy. Um, universal credit came in uh, and it was again, championed by uh, Ian Duncan Smith, who is like one of the most like next to George Osborne is one of the bloodiest fucking ghouls, death mask motherfuckers of austerity. Oh yes. And like most Tories also wrote a taut, sexy action novel about an art heist called the devil's tune. Um, (laughs) Did you read read the art heist book? (laughs) I actually have tried. He's such a bad writer that it's not actually funny. I was like, I I was like trying, I was like, I was wading through just like a a swamp of thick water, like the Mm -hmm. kind of thing they give you if you have trouble swallowing. It was like swimming through that. Awful. Um, And for for TMK listeners, the floor of books uh, that Riley will work his way through is extremely low. So, I mean, that just (laughs) tells you how awful this one was. (laughs) All right. So, so universal credit, right? Was they, they said, okay, we're going to centralize all these payments. And the and this is again enabled by sort of big scale government IT. So like not this generation of of tech because most government tech procurement tends to be a generation back, but it's a good example. And they sort of they centralized it all and they said, well, because we're just giving you one payment, we're gonna make it twenty percent less than the total of all the other payments. Mm-hmm. And so and so they were they they were able to sort of in that logic of rationalization, they were able to sort of create their moment of crisis whereby. The, the welfare state could be further sort of captured and residualized. And so the way I sort of see the deployment of, um, of technology is, is the, the deployment of technology after the financial crisis in the method of that is often talked about by like, you know, your nudge people or whatever is kind of like universal credit where it comes in as this rationalizer but like everything else, it ends up having a deeply political effect and ends up serving the political interests of the people who deploy it. Mm-hmm. The, the technology aspect of this is also really interesting. I mean, just backing up, you know, you mentioned the Chicago boys. And we should say that while like on this episode, we're, we're largely going to focus on the kind of contemporary thought leader. And I think the financial crash is a really good catalyst point for that because and we'll, we'll get into this. But, you know, I've, I've been thinking of, of it as ZERP brain, right? So zero interest rate <laughs> policy brain, like the, the ways in which, you know, basically access to like free and infinite money money has just smoothed the brains of of thousands of people who because 
of an economy where the line just keeps going up no matter what you do. Like it's an unstoppable force of nature. Um, it, it, it creates this validation in them that like whatever they're doing, whatever policy they're doing, whatever they're investing in, whatever technology that they're like hoisting onto the, uh, onto the public, it must be right. It must be good because line keeps going up. And, that, and that's the only barometer of the goodness of something. Um, and and I, I, I think, Ed, you called it, uh, you said this, turn them all into these like capitalist jokers that willed this infinite sum of yeah. capital like clubs, right? They're, they're, they're just going around bashing everybody, uh, smoothing everyone's brain, caving everyone's brain pan in because of Zerp, right? Mm. <laughs> So if, if I can, actually, I'll give you a couple examples of what uh, some of these thought leaders think we should do about climate change, because yes. I think oh, this, is perfect, this is a perfect <laughs> summary of what you're talking about. Uh, Steven Pinker's solution is um, like oh, Zeppelins. What? <laughs> uh, Zeppelins <laughs> that will, called cloud ships that will sort of fly through the sky, seeding clouds to bounce um, radiation back. Uh, from <laughs> oh yeah, it, it, geoengineering, baby. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah. I feel so like that's in the Snowpiercer prequel. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, I mean, the other thing, right, is like the the, the way to, that these the thought leader, the te the TED Talk people understand technology is basically a wizard. Uh, a friendly mm -hmm. wizard is going to come and fix it. And mm -hmm. so Stephen Pinker's case, the friendly wizard is cloud ships. Again, we aren't going to think about all the rest of the problems. We aren't going to think about you know, who's benefited from this already. We're not going to think about like the transition away from this kind of thing. It's like the idea is his job is to say a wizard will save us so that that can then be sort of politically neutered. Um, mm -hmm. The nudge thinks that the way to stop climate change is to uh, post everyone's energy consumption in a public forum. Oh God! Yes, yeah, so <laughs> then you can so shame like, everyone, right? Like yeah, you can it's shame climate Maoism. For... <laughs> <laughs> it's climate, Are we gonna have you know, a struggle it's... session for the billionaires, though? They're just gonna be in their mansions. What are we gonna do? Drag them out? Well, I you do. know, we assume that they'll. Like, well, they have a bunch. Again, they have a bunch of bullshit as to uh, why that will work. Mm. Um, who else? Let's see. Oh, Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley is one of my favorite ones. Matt Ridley. His argument is climate change will happen, but because of economic growth, everyone will be so rich they don't care. Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, because what about the people who starve? <laughs> or, or lose well, their, no, they'll be, everyone will be that. If you look at the app, everyone will be that rich. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, a rising tide, <laughs> the rising tide of climate change raises it, all boats, yeah. Ed. <laughs> And you houses <laughs> and infrastructure. So, so I mean, I mean, Ridley is kind of the best one. He is the uh, the best one for this, where he is the most a wizard did it of any of the big brain thinkers. Like um, someone like Max Rose. Like if if a really good book about this is called Glass Half Empty by uh, Rodrigo uh, Aguilera, uh, mm -hmm. who's a, an economist that um, and I've I've spoken with him on, on TF. I did a book club with him and a panel at uh, the world transformed in bristol bristol transformed and he's so he he fucking hates thought leaders <laughs> um <laughs> as but, we all uh, should yeah. so uh he and i were sort of going through the the these different guys and someone like max roser is uh, who does our world in data you know like this max roser again he's um sort of a, a, a stats guy 
And, you know, he's relatively, relatively harmless because he's just very interested in stat. It's the kind of stats he's interested in in many cases are just like the elephant graph, which all these motherfuckers love, mm -hmm. which shows the percent that uh, you're, do your, your listeners be familiar with the elephant graph. No, go ahead and give us a quick explanation. So, the elephant graph, it's this um, development economics thing, and it's, it's a neoliberal development economics concept, and they all cite it all the time to basically try to, and it's part of discrediting the post-financial crisis left, in fact, overtly. And it's like one of the roots of calling them racist for wanting, for being on the left, where it says, look, if you imagine a line that goes in a big hump, goes down uh, like, a, like a parabola, and then goes up like a big semicircle with a narrow squiggle that goes all the way up. And it's the percentage that different income deciles of the world have had their income grow in the last 50 years. So the bottom 60% has actually all seen income growth. They've all had their incomes grow by like, you know, whatever, 5, 10, 15, 20%. The number in absolute poverty is now, you know, nothing. And of course, because this is, these are all, and then of course, you know, the working class, the developed world, the like seventh, uh, sixth and seventh or eighth sort of richest decile, they've had their incomes fall by like 20%. But wait, how come you, yeah, it's like this economic system that we have, this produced like, you know, 20% rises in the bottom, you know, 60% and only at the cost of 20% and the uh, of losses in sort of just two deciles. And then of course, 20% and 100% raise in the first decile. But that's all relative. So it means that like the bottom 60% mm. has had their incomes go up from, you know, $2 to $3 a day. And right. the top 10% has had their income as uh, and anyone listening to this show knows the rest of the story. You know, they're all those real Reddit guys that became accidentally got rich trying to buy some of that China white. Um, and, and, but they love deploying that again, like as a sort of big, big sort of big fuck off to the left, because it's like, a, oh, you hate this system that's benefited so many uh, mm -hmm. by POC and, and the, around the world. And it's like, fuck off. No, it hasn't. Yeah. This is again, just a little bit of sleight of hand. It's the sleight of hand of saying, all of those, all of those percentage increases in the bottom sixty percent is worth all of those decreases in the um in the next two percent and the hundred percent increase in that first ten percent when in fact the actual distribution of wealth is an exponential curve and the whole point of of these thought leaders is to make you doubt the evidence of your eyes that mm -hmm. the problem is that the wealth is in an exponential curve and not an elephant. That's a really good point there is that, yeah, I mean, the deployment of this kind of like maths magic, the, these really deceptive stats, the idea here is that you think you understand the world through your, your lived experiences, um, just by looking around, uh, by considering how your own standard of living has has jumped and changed uh, and the people that you know. But in reality, you actually don't understand the world at all um, because you don't understand this one really specific, whether it's a, it's a graph, right? This is the Steven Pinker trick, right? That like, yeah. actually um, everything is infinitely better than it ever was before. And if, and if you don't experience it as infinitely better, um, you are actually uh, deceiving yourself and deceiving mm. everybody else. Um, yeah. I like this, you know, kind of flipping it around. You are actually not considering how it's infinitely better in Africa um, or in South America. For these you're a little because, racist for that. Yeah, mm. and you're racist for that because your parochial view is just in your suburb in Ohio, um, and you you don't have this globalist viewpoint of the world. 
and this is the Freakonomics trick or the nudge trick as well. It's that, you know, actually you don't understand this one weird trick, uh, the secret causation that, you know, to understand the entire system, you just need to understand this one thing, mm. right? The hermetic vibe to all of this is interesting too, where it's like a lot of the thought leaders also speak in ways or try to position themselves in ways where it's like on the outskirts or in you know the same halls or parties or circles as people in power, right? And the traditional idea of like hermetic knowledge is like, this is the secret understanding through which we rule or control or mm -hmm. disrupt the world. When in reality, it's just like, this is the gossamer that we just put on top of everything so that it continues to work as it was intended, but with like my little personalized twist through my suggestion of like cloud seeding through airships. <laughs> fucking dull. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the whole brain uh, of a seduction. fucking child. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. the whole seduction of the TED talk as well, is that they are actually letting you in on a secret. Right, mm. they're they're going to um, open the doors to the secret oath. They're going to let you in on the secret ancient knowledges. They're going to give you the skeleton key to unlock um, understanding of this system. It, it really is the galaxy brain meme, uh, mm. but like it, it, in in actualization, right? Yeah. So I think the other thing to draw here, right, is um, it, as you've already sort of pointed out the connection to Zerp, right? And I mean, I think Zerp has Zerp is something that's worth going into. I mean, to be honest, there's not just an episode; there's an entire podcast series to be made about Zerp, mm -hmm. and it's called Trash Future. Um, but, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's sort of accident. We didn't intend to do that, but it ended up being that. But um, I think sort of looking at the at what you might call like tech, like thought leader optimist, um, mm -hmm. as a kind of kind of school of thought. I mean, Gladwell doesn't really fit in here so much. He's sort of peripheral. He has a similar project, but he isn't so overtly in love with the idea of, of technology specifically, like all the other ones are. The point of all of you, one of the things that you notice about all of their, about the, the sort of the, the prescriptions for dealing with climate change are, we are going to create the conditions for the market to sort it out. And the liberal sort of techno-optimist thought leaders, your Cass and Suns, Cass and Sunstein, or, and, and, sorry, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, rather, I said Cass and Sunstein like a fool. Um, <laughs> You're Thaler and Sunstein. Well, they'll they say, well, we're going to let people sort. We are going to create the conditions for people to sort it out with discourse and norms and by influencing one another. Your conservative uh, techno optimist thought leaders, so Pinker, um, Ridley being examples of this, uh, they say the important thing is to create the conditions, basically for you know high X stroke Schumpter. Uh, creative destruction. The some big brained entrepreneur is going to figure it out. I'm only I'm the Salieri. I only recognize the genius of others. I don't have it myself. And so I'm going to write the book about how important it is that we let the entrepreneurs entrepreneur. So if you think about it, right, Steven Pinker is saying, look, the economy will do all kinds of crazy tech stuff to sort this out. Don't worry about it. Uh, Matt Ridley is saying, you're going to be so rich, you don't care. You'll be able to, and then you'll have that demand, and then someone will meet your demand to you not to be killed by global warming. That's basically right. his theory. And why this sort of is sort of such a tidy ideological partner of, of, you might say, sort of persistently low interest rates. Now, again, I don't want to over-rely. I don't think it's worth over-relying on persistently low interest rates because those have a myriad of causes and effects. In brief, interest rates are tend to be lowered by central banks 
uh, when uh, when they are, want to sort of, um, you might say, stimulate economic activity, um, and then interest rates might rise when they want to when economic activity picks up and um, uh, it, and we want to control it so we don't end up with inflation. The idea is to keep the economy growing at a kind of steady state and keep the money supply sort of growing that it matches with the economy that we're not going to like you know cause any major problems. When the, how the interest rate gets transmitted is the central banks create bank deposits in like large commercial banks, so like UBS or Bank of America or whatever, and those banks then can lend that money. They can lend it sometimes to venture capitalists. They can lend it to asset managers. They can lend it directly to small businesses. They can lend it to people to buy houses, all that kind of stuff, or they can give it to themselves uh, with big bonuses. I mean, that's not that's not precisely that's not precisely true. Um, <laughs> only uh, only only in a very sort of you might say a very sort of let's say it would it would require a very circular method of going about it. But they create the bank, the central bank creates the deposits the banks lend out. And the idea is, right, the interest rate is, no, it's, it's debated where the interest rate comes from uh, because a lot of like the interest rates on something like U.S. treasuries, those are set in auctions. So I, one, of my, one of my friends, James Meadway, he said, like, look, the, the way to think about an interest rate is it's the percent chance of success that we think a project is going to have. If money is expensive, we think a lot of projects are going to succeed, and so we only want a loan to the best ones. Money is cheap because we think kind of nothing's going to succeed and we'll take any return. If you have a zero interest rate, which is what we've effectively had, or a negative interest rate in, in some cases for a while, depending on what economy you look at, so a negative interest rate, the uh, you basically, if I buy a bond at a negative interest rate, I'm paying you to lend you money because I think the amount of money I'm paying you is going to be less than inflation. So I'm yeah. I'm going to make money compared to inflation, but I'm still going to pay you to take my money. Mm -hmm. um, what the uh, this is all a very long-winded way of looking at the present tech economy, which I think Trash Future does as a product of this financial regime. The idea of we cannot do this with politics. We're not going to use fiscal policy, that is to say redistribution, public spending, political projects. We're not going to confront our crises with political projects. We're not going to have our politics hat on. We're going to confront this crisis with the free market, which means we have to assume lend like it doesn't matter if nothing works, basically. And that means essentially, if you follow that on, what that encourages is that encourages things like monopolism, uh, that encourages uh, sort of businesses to sort of stay loss-making forever so that they can then charge monopoly rents later, so they can capture market share. That encourages bizarre business models. It's what gave us MoviePass. It's what mm -hmm. gave us, you know, um, Uber. It's mm -hmm. what gave, well, a lot of things gave us Uber, but for example, uh, it's, what, it's why Netflix has never made any money. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's why all <laughs> of these things are the case because the idea is we're just going to give money to the private sector which mm -hmm. in which right now effectively means when you ask bankers that means uh, tech sector because that's where all these big assets are getting massively sort of overvalued and again this is a very very oversimplified version of this story um, it's it's the short version um, mm -hmm. that's where a lot of that money ends up and so the idea is when we say a wizard will do it this is how we get the wizard to do it and I, I've just I've I'm checking pretty often the wizard hasn't done it yet. <laughs> <laughs>
still waiting for Arthur to come along and pull Excalibur from the stone. And, th- yeah, and that- to pull the ri- interest rates up to above like 1.5%. <laughs> I think that is a, a, a really great explanation of the kind of financial ecosystem that 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 we're in. And mm-hmm. I think there's um there's a question here as well. And I, I kind of posed it to you before as we were like talking about this episode, Riley, but like what came first basically, right? Was it was it <laughs> the financial conditions of ZERP um, or was it the smooth brain thought leaders? And and I don't think there's a, a easy kind of like unilateral causal direction here right because like the thought leaders have essentially created the kind of intellectual uh, justification um, for ZERP while also looking at the effects of ZERP on the tech industry and the boom in technology um, and, 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 the, and the, the appearance or, or uh, eventual appearance of this wizard and have crafted all kinds of theories uh, and have, have taken themselves these kind of like technological turns um, in their thinking to, on one hand, kind of ride the ZERP way, right? Like, you know, well, we're, we're, we're intellectuals, we're not financiers. Mm. And so we're not going to be doing the actual investing and, and startups and, and, and all of that. But instead, what we're going to do uh, is we're going to, um, our, our product that we're creating are the theories, are the mm. ideas as to why this is actually a really good thing and why the wizard will come if we just have faith. Every sort of, um, if you like, every every subgenre of capitalism has its handmaidens. It has mm-hmm. its it. For example, you know the, the the rail barons. You know they had their they had their lawyers and lobbyists. They had their land surveyors. They had their mercenaries. Um, finance capitalism had its Michelin starred restaurants and had its its own different lobbyists. Um, sort of like, net, like resource extraction had its CIA. Like lo- like capitalism always capital always has its handmaidens. Those mm-hmm. who will perform basically fake labor uh, to be compensated for it. And so that's why I think, you know, I mean, if you wanted to be really fatuous, you could say what came first, the, the, the relations of production or the thought leader. Well, I'd say in the 17th century, we looked at, there was a little study of linen coat production in the north of England. <laughs> 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 uh, you, so, but like, it's, I think the way to see these guys is, and what's, okay, so what's interesting actually about this is that what's different from the normal sort of relationship of the handmaidens of capital and then capital is that this is, as you get beyond sort of your Steven Pinker, Ted Talk simpletons, you end up then with the venture capitalist, who is a different animal entirely, mm-hmm. who is, and the, the venture capitalist sort of as publicly facing, and this, you know, I even count someone like sort of Elon Musk in this, right? He doesn't, mm. he, he hasn't necessarily like written a book or given a TED Talk, but his sort of entire public presence is making that same kind of argument, which is I'm the wizard. I'm going to do it. You might even say that what's happened is, uh, the, is that venture capitalists like um, like Shamath or, or Balaji or whatever, what they've or, or Musk, uh, not just venture capitalists but capitalists like Musk, um, mm-hmm. what they've essentially done is they have automated their own handmaiden and realized they can do the job themselves yeah. by saying, "Wait a minute, you don't need. I don't need you to tell the, the idiots that a wizard's going to do it. I'm just going to say I'm the great and powerful Oz." Whether mm-hmm. I'm doing that by saying um, I'm going to invest in I'm going to invest in money in Bitcoin because I believe it's the future of the financial system, while simultaneously using it as a way to sort of you know um, 
have like a 10,000 X returns on my investment or what have you, you know, like they, they never, they are never sort of need that the wizard spell never needs to happen because they, the technology just keeps to need, needs to keep being there. Uh, the Bitcoin or whatever, the cryptocurrency number just needs to keep going up. It stays in the news as the future. And then the, the consensus around it stays as the future. Never mind the fact that, you know what, it's, it's been around for, well, like um, over a decade now. And, you know, it still isn't really used for that much other than just a speculative asset. And it was supposed to, when it was invented, be something else entirely. It was supposed to be an alternative to the political control. And now it is yet again another it, it is nevertheless political. It is a store of, uh, of wealth or something like Tesla. Tesla, when it was created, Tesla has had like 16, like 16, 17 years to become a monopoly. It has um, what 4% and falling electric vehicle share, mm-hmm. uh, especially in high penetration EV markets like uh, Europe. This is not the iPhone. The job of these guys, whether it's, you know, the um, VCs who love to congratulate themselves a Y Combinator or whatever, or you know, guys like Musk, is to say that they're the wizard and they're working on a spell. They just need another five years of this psychotically unequal economy, and it will all have been worth it because mm. I'm gonna create. I'm gonna do the best spell. That has been the whole story, and and Ed, you've you've been on this beat for a while as well. That like the wizard will come next year. Or the yeah. year after that, right? It's always perpetually one year away that autonomous vehicles will become uh, a reality, that Uber will become profitable, right? Like mm-hmm. it's always this constantly uh, moving the goalpost a little bit. It's it's the you know it's the apocalyptic uh, uh, prophets that say you know the world is going to end uh, on in, in 2012, right? Oh well, that didn't yeah. happen, but you know, we just misread the the stone tablets. Um, it's actually going to happen in this thing, but it's the complete inverse of that. It's not it's not an apocalyptic doomsayer. It's a utopian soothsayer, right? Like yeah, that, that's what it is. And I think Uber ends up being my favorite example to use for this because you know they spend a decade saying such crazy shit right we'll have flying taxis um that will cost 50 dollars in new york city and by like in like two years it'll be cheaper than owning a car no one will own a car anymore um we'll automate every car and there'll, there'll be a perfect ride where you'll get in and someone will get out just like a bus you know but there's also like little to no pushback even up until relatively recently. I mean, like the CEO of Uber was like giving interviews where he's like, we're going to be the operating system of your city in like a year or two. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you know, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? You guys can't even make a profit. You're not even in every city and you're talking about how we're going to be the, the OS of your, um, your city. But people don't question it, right? Because... This, I think this metaphor of the wizard is also really good because it's like, well, we don't really understand all the details. You know, maybe they're working on something behind the scenes. You know, a lot of critiques get blunted of uh, really extravagant and nonsensical narratives that are presented by capitalists. If we engage with critically, would be read as just like delay tactics, but they're allowed to get that work because the idea is like, oh, it's so like it's so hard to imagine. They must have something in the works, right? Uber wouldn't just lie like that. You know, they wouldn't just say Uber wouldn't lie. <laughs> no, never. They, inv- they invented it to be. They invented it being weirdly, suspiciously cheap for me to get around the city for a few <laughs> years. Why would they lie? But um, so the, the city point is a is a great one in terms of look. Again, we're gonna leave the sort of people who write books that no one no one actually reads. 
uh, thought leaders in the dust. I want to mm-hmm. talk about my favorite venture capitalist, who's yeah, Balaji Srinivasan. Best mm-hmm. one. He's the mm-hmm. ma- he's the biggest fucking madman. <laughs> um, <laughs> he wrote a thread today that I'm just gonna com- I'm going to share with you. Oof. CEO of the city. What the in fuck? a remote <laughs> world, talent is mobile. Mayors no longer need to run for higher office. They can level up just by recruiting talent to their city. On the other hand, they can also lose talent if the city doesn't perform. <laughs> More upside and downside than before. So he's basically, and again, is in a classic sort of Balaji uh, way where he thinks that he's the CEO of everyone around him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's basically just sort of talking in like half riddles. Uh, he says, the acceleration of remote working has changed the world in more ways than people realize. Politicians must deliver results or an instant vote of no confidence is called as people emigrate out. More like a parliamentary system, except you choose between cities rather than parties. So what he's basically saying is, look, this has given us an opportunity to go back to the Greek city-state system <laughs> of like direct <laughs> democracy, but also where everyone works in JavaScript. Yeah, if we go back to the city state system, can we do ostracizing again? Can we bring that back and just expel him and some other people from the city? That would be nice. He's he's essentially being like, look, you have to think of he's he's doing his thing where like he's he's being speculative and descriptive at the same time. Mm-hmm. Where he's saying mm-hmm. like, look, now that talent is mobile, the mayor must think like a CEO or mm-hmm. else high paying like and this again this is obliquely uh, towards san francisco city council being like if you know you ask me to pick up my dog shit or you ask my dog walker to pick up after my dog i will move all of my employees out and bankrupt you um <laughs> says, right uh, underlying this is always that subtle threat of the capital strike yeah so no legislation needs to be passed, but remote changes every job of the job of every politician as much as social media did. The medium term consequence is the rise of competitive government, deliver results or lose citizens. Again, no one is uh, no one has any attachments to the city they're in. No one has any friends or family. Uh, everyone is just looking to maximize the amount of, of, of money they can take home from, at the end of the day from creating JavaScript. They're trying to, is that, is that humans are machines to turn um, Huel into JavaScript and like water, we will flow to where the tax barrier is least. And so mayors have to uh, develop a new operating system for success. And, you know, again, meanwhile, the actual business of actually running a city is political. Mm-hmm. It's political. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the whole point of the, of, a venture capitalist brain, venture capitalist thought leader brain is, is to try to apply the paradigms of either like owning a company at worst or like running an agile sprint at best um, to essentially political problems. But what they never see, or at least it doesn't matter if they see because they're just advoca- advancing an ideology that sort of that advances their interest is that within the agile sprint or within the company you've bought, those relationships are still politically determined. It's just that, and what you don't like about the about the politics is that um, people get a voice to talk back to you. Um, mm-hmm. And what they what they like about the agile sprint or buying the company is that there is that implicit threat of being fired. That means that everyone will do what you say. And so anything that all of that these entrepreneur thought leaders, VC thought leaders say tends to boil down to, and so I think this thread from Serena Vassan is no different, I should be the boss. Mm-hmm. I should be the boss of more stuff. And more people should act like I'm the boss and do what I say. And that's their big invention. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think my, my favorite part of all this, and you, you've hit on it beautifully, is that I don't even know if they realize a lot of their quote-unquote ideas are not even that new either, right? Like they are essentially um, adding the kind of absurdity and superficiality and facile thinking that comes with viewing everything through the lens of technology with a capital T in order to essentially just like uh, memify the theories of like the Chicago boys, right? Of the like rational actor choice theory stuff. You know, this idea that everyone, that the labor market needs to be infinitely mobile and no one needs to have any connections to any space or place. I mean, these were policy ideas uh, that, you know, the the neoclassical um, economist, the neoliberal economist, people like Milton Friedman, people like Gary Becker, these were policy ideas that they were putting forward, you know, 50 years ago, um, when, the, you know, saying that, you know, essentially, if, if you are poor in a city like San Francisco, that's because you haven't taken the initiative to move to where the jobs are, right? You haven't taken the initiative um, to, to start a small business in a suburb in Montana. Montana, um, you are instead, you are trapping yourself in a place that you can't live um, because you haven't actualized your full entrepreneurial potential. Um, and therefore, it's your fault, right? It, it's it's <laughs> your fault because you're not acting rationally. Um, you, are, you are going against homo economicus and you are being homo stupidious or whatever, right? <laughs> That's what it boils down to. I'm remembering this quote from Gary Becker, who someone that we need to spend like a whole episode picking apart, um, but really, you know, a, a leading light, one of the originators of rational choice theory, and also particularly his innovation here was applying um, economic theory to sociological problems, right? Like we can solve crime um, if we do it by understanding rational choice theory. We can promote family tradition, uh, these kind of conservative ideals, if we understand the family as a, a collection of rational actors. So he wrote, he's the, Gary Becker's the one that coined this term human capital um, in a book that he wrote in the 70s. And, and then the introduction to a later edition to, to human capital from 1993, he says in this uh, introduction, I hesitated a while before deciding to call my book Human Capital. In the early days, many people were criticizing this term and the underlying analysis because they believed that it treated people like slaves or machines. My, how things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, pay for your own training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, which is, you know, that's essentially the uh, the world that we're living in now, right, is that it, it's caught up. The world itself has caught up to these kind of original thought leaders of neoliberalism, of neoclassical economics, you know, who themselves were on the margins, were being contrarian, and now they are solidly in the mainstream, and they are immensely excited about it, right? That, like, we talk about human capital... Um, um, as just another word, right? Like it's just a, it's just a normal thing. It's a normal way to understand people and social relations. Oh, they wouldn't see themselves as uh, in the mainstream, of course. They would still see themselves as contrarian. Yeah, <laughs> that that is definitely part of the thought leader milieu, right? Is that you need to always be on the outside because that gives you the credibility to be edgy. 
You're marching through the institutions of power, you know? That's right. That you're, march you're marching through the institutions of power, declaring, I'm Steven Pinker, and I'm here to take <laughs> over the U.S. Capitol building. Actually, <laughs> that wasn't me. That was on Epstein um, Island. Yeah. I was say, meanwhile, oh, you're man, jetting around love. on Epstein, on the Lolita Express. Oh, yeah, these guys love Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> uh, yeah. Except, except Matt Ridley. I think, okay, so Matt Ridley's my, I think he's my favorite of, like, the the book guys because all of the the venture capitalists like none of those guys have like the, the, no, those guys are like those guys are robots i think they have any they don't really have much to do with epstein um but the uh, the other guys the book guys they love epstein i uh, <laughs> loved um <laughs> and so like yeah they're like photos of them together hanging out on his on his private plane um uh, uh steven pinker on the flight logs um, Malcolm Gladwell on the flight logs. Malcolm Gladwell on the flight logs. They love flying in his plane. Matt Ridley, not on the flight logs, even though, like, Matt Ridley uh, has a PhD from Oxford in uh, pheasant mating. And then <laughs> because his father, and he, because he's a baron, and his father was chairman of Northern Rock, he had basically inherited his father's seat um, on the board of Northern Rock, the oh only God. bank in the UK to go into administration as a result of the financial <laughs> crisis. <laughs> because Matt Ridley was so keen on investing in like <laughs> collateralized debt obligations. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, then he, and then he writes books about like his advice on how to structure society after being like, almost historically confirmed like the second worst banker in England after maybe only <laughs> Nick Leeson, you know, who collapsed bearings with one rogue trade in the 1990s. These thought and, leaders are too big to fail. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so I think Matt Ridley's genuinely like, but his sense of the world is one of childlike innocence where he believes that like it's really significant that um, his computer mouse is the same size and shape as an ancient stone hand axe. Yes, yes, that. That, that is that is one of my favorite anecdotes from Matt Ridley's <laughs> book that you guys went through uh, yeah. on Intelligence X.0. Um, and, and I think it, it, it so perfectly encapsulates the thought leader mindset is that it is actually one of childlike wonder. Right. It's it's walking it's walking into Willy Wonka's factory and just marveling at all of the happy Oompa Loompas who are making everything run, um, marveling at all of the weird innovations. Um, you know, the snozberries taste like snozberries. The computer mouse is the same shape as an ancient stone axe. There must be something uh, biologically inherent to the, 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 the development of innovation and technology. And I, I think that really does get at um, one of the most kind of like stupid but pernicious aspects of a lot of this thought leadership is this weird techno-biological determinism that mm. it has as well, right? So it's we're going back like to Jared Diamond. Jared mm -hmm. Diamond. It's also people like- Kurzweil. Kurzweil, like, well, well, I think in the premium episode, uh, we'll talk more about some of these earlier generations of like web 1.0, web 2.0 thought leaders, but it's people like, you know, we've mentioned before on the podcast, like Kevin Kelly, who quite literally uh, traces a, uh, a straight line from the Big Bang to the Blackberry. The form of the Blackberry, <laughs> it's very platonic in this way. It's a very platonic on like metaphysics where the form of the Blackberry can be found in the Big Bang itself. So this is basically, this is basically like, um, it's the same logic as finding like star constellations. It's just 
we are conditioned to look for patterns. And so, you know, we're going to do it. And the, pro- and the problem is if, if you don't doubt your own capacity to identify patterns, then you're at risk of being a big, dumb idiot in press. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Effectively. You're at risk of publishing something that will later be made fun of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no- nothing reveals these fools as charlatans um, as their own as their own words right just referencing the things that they write and the things that they think like nothing could discredit their ideas better than themselves like what do you think is a better explanation of 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 imperialism imperialism or the fact that eurasia is very long and uh, africa and north and south america are very tall (laughs) (laughs) that is that's jared diamond yeah, yeah. It's, it's vertical integration versus horizontal relations. You know? <laughs> so it's a, his, what his argument was, was that essentially there were a variety, there were more, a wider variety of different, you could essentially exchange more different things in different biomes um, on a whole long horizontal basis than you could easily do that on an up and down basis essentially. Mm-hmm. So it was easier for more Europeans to get around and more Europeans and Asians to get around and see one another. And it says, okay, well, now I have to account for why Europe, rather than say sort of China, was at the head of what is often called by these people the Great Divergence, which is where like Europe gets its guns and germs and steel and everyone else gets the guns and germs and steel on the wrong end, effectively. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, well, now I have to look at the fact that there were these complex civilizations that developed elsewhere. It's like, okay, well, okay, here's what happened in Europe, I guess. Uh, what does Europe have? Europe has a lot of mountains and rivers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Europe is at the end of the Eurasian Peninsula that has a lot of mountains and rivers, which means that the terrain is cut up naturally into a lot of small countries. And that means that the political authority develops in those sort of delimited areas. And then they can fight amongst one another and they're constantly training to have the best military tactics and the best forms of government because they're so competitive because they're all, it naturally creates many sort of small factions that fight amongst one another. So the one that wins is going to be awesome. If you take a cursory look at a map of Europe in 1700, (laughs) political authority does not follow those lines, you fucking moron. (laughs) How do you account for the Spanish Netherlands? Fool. <laughs> Holy Roman Empire. Was that a, was that, was, oh, oh, what? So what you're saying that like, you know, Brandenburg also controls like three streets in Salzburg, Austria because of what? A stream? Like that, these are political questions. And you're trying to like, and because you can only see the political outcome as an outcome, as a thing to be explained, mm-hmm. not as a cause in itself, you end up writing something like that. And who would want to write something like that? <laughs> I mean, it's it's great because it, it, it's replacing one determinism for another. And I think this is a, a, a red thread through all thought leaders, right? Is that it, it is just on the lookout constantly for deterministic theories about why things are the way that they are. But implicit in that, or sometimes explicit, is that things are the way that they are because it's natural and good, right? So we just yeah. need to find the the human uh, physics where like one billiard ball hits another billiard ball. And it's just, it's just causal determinism, right? Like that's, that's all mm-hmm. it comes down to. And my favorite thing is when um, one thought leader uh, exchanges one version of determinism for another one because they they're just hopping on the next train right so Mm -hmm. um i I think 
my the the best example of this it's from a an essay that uh, Evgeny Morozov wrote in in the New Republic back when he was when he was doing his uh, contrarian um, tech critic polemics you know writing these like twenty thousand word book review essays in the New Republic things that nobody could ever get away with now and nobody ever got away with before him he reviewed. Um, this book in an essay called The Naked and the Ted by Parag and Aisha Khanna. And and the Khanna's were, um, and particularly Parag Khanna was this like geopolitical thought leader. He he kind of fancied himself as like the next Kissinger. Get snuffed the fuck out. Kissinger was his his role model. But then at some point he took a technological turn when he wrote this book that was published by the Ted Publishing Press um, called Hybrid Reality. The, about the human and social relations in an emerging technological world. And uh, Evgeny writes, quote, the technological turn in Kana's thought is hardly surprising. As he and others have discovered by now, one can continue fooling the public with slick ahistorical geriomads on geopolitics by serving them with the coarse but tasty sauce that is the cyber wig theory of history. The recipe is simple. Find some peculiar global trend, the more arcane the better, Draw a straight line connecting it to the world of apps, electric cars, and Bay Area venture capital. Mention robots, Japan, and cyber war. Use shiny slides that contain incomprehensible but impressive maps and visualizations. Stir well, serve on multiple platforms. With their never-ending talk of Twitter revolutions and the like, techno-globalists such as Kana have a bright future ahead of them. And and, and I, I mean, that's exactly it, right? Like they just hopped on one determinism, technology. And, and in Kana's book, he talks about uh, you know, this force called technic or technique, um, much in the same way that like Kevin Kelly um, in his book, What Technology Wants, talks about this um, arcane mystical force called the technium, right? That runs throughout history. But the, the form of it is exactly like their thinking has not changed at all. The only thing that's changed is the the absurd linguistic constructions that they use mm -hmm. to talk about the same exact thing. The techno babble, essentially, you know, like in that essay, Morozov talks about how, you know, politics doesn't exist. The same sort of constraint on thought leaders. So you can only talk about coders, scientists and engineers, right? And entrepreneurial activity that like somehow engages all three of them and pulls it out. And like this to people in the moment who are looking for, you know, the same sort of satisfaction or, you know, masturbatory experience as uh, thought leader readers, or but also as just in general, the, the like, you know, the vacuous defenses of power, you know, then listening to just engineers to design better and shinier ways of controlling people is like, it's really fascinating. It's really interesting. You don't actually have to like think about how hard or how ethical or how immoral some stance might be. You just have to think about whether or not you can modify some metric inside of the system that's already good because it's good for you, right? And it's good for the people that you know. It must be or else you wouldn't be able to, you know, to, to work on it in the first place. I, I want to pose a question to Riley here. 
do we think that these thought leaders, are they liars or are they bullshitters, right? So if we think about like Harry Frankfurt's um, mm -hmm. distinction here on, on bullshit and lying, right? Like, so Harry Frankfurt, a philosopher, wrote this, you know, great essay called On Bullshit. And he, he writes, quote, it is impossible for someone to lie unless they think they know the truth. Producing bullshit requires no such conviction. A person who lies is thereby responding to the truth and is it, uh, to that extent respectful of it, right? But for the bullshitter, however, all these bets are off. They are neither on the side of the truth nor on the side of the false. Their eye is not on the facts at all, um, but rather uh, insofar as they may be pertinent to their interest in getting away with what they say. They don't mm. care whether the things they say describe reality correctly. So are they, are they liars or are they bullshitters? I think they're completely telling the truth, which is that they honest, I think they honestly believe everything they say. Because the, the power of ideology is that you could whack them up with sodium pentothal. You could put them on a lie detector test, you know, do anything you want. They will swear up and down that, that uh, sort of uh, the developing world was underdeveloped because it's up, it, it's up and down. That the hand, it's significant that my computer mouse looks like a hand axe. That you know, um, a city needs to uh, act like it has an HR department, and uh, it's always meetings on Monday or whatever. Like they believe that. The point of ideology is that they believe that because mm -hmm. the point of ideology is to disguise the fact that the real reason they're rich is something else, mm -hmm. and they're rich, and they have an explanation as to why they're rich or why their friends are rich or why things are the way they are, and things are the way they are. And the only people who are emerging to challenge that are essentially, um, I don't know, people that they can dismiss as Luddites because we're saying that the way things are isn't good. And then they've got that ideology to fall back on. So I think the question of whether or not they're lying is sort of not the right one. I think the question is like, how can you tell other people not so much that they're lying, but that they're wrong or that they're right about something that's not good for you. So if, if Steven Pinker is right, and if the world is designed as designed by Steven Pinker, if, if he gets to set everything up, you are as fucked effectively. We, and that's so why I think the important point is here when thinking about these guys is thinking like, number one, all of their public communications are part of a wider ideological project that are not in and of themselves important. That's why they're so absurd. Because they're not, as, as, as we say on, on TF, they're not meant to be read. They are part mm -hmm. of a wider sort of consent manufacture program. And so you can almost think of these guys, I think, as like black boxes where, or Chinese rooms where it doesn't really matter. You know, the, the, the message comes out and the message has a political effect. And I think the question has, is to be around how to counter the political effect that is created by books that are never read. Right. You mentioning the consent manufacturing, I think, is, is dead on here as well. It reminds me of, you know, that, that anecdote after Chomsky wrote, you know, manufacturing consent. You know, he was doing the media rounds on it and was like in some hostile interview with some, you know, famous Oh, this was with Peston. <laughs> this was with Robert Peston. Yeah. yeah. There's another yeah. one too with uh, Andrew, uh, Marr Andrew Marr at the BBC. Oh, maybe, no, maybe this was with Marr. I could be thinking of the one with Marr. I, I mix the I, two I, up all the time. I mean, I think this conversation happened multiple times, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> 
of these these you know very august newsmen kind of confronting Chomsky and saying, "Are you saying, sir, that I am up here, you know, willfully spitting propaganda that I am trying to shape the minds of the public um, according to you know the imperialist interest of the state, according to uh, the corporate interest of global capitalists that that I get my talking points fed to me every Monday morning in the in the Monday meetings that we have, um, and then I come up here and dutifully just repeat them. Chauncey said, no, 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 no. You, you misunderstand. You simply would not be in the position to be reading the news if you didn't already believe these things as true. You would have been weeded out from the very beginning. I think that is exactly the, the stance of these thought leaders, right? Like they would not be in the position um, for us to be talking about them um, <laughs> if they didn't truly believe that. Because if it no. wasn't them, it would be somebody else. No, they'd be on here. Yeah, they'd be on here, right. <laughs> <laughs> we got weeded out. We got, yeah. I, I, I tried. <laughs> I tried to be a thought leader. Ed and I have talked about before how, uh, you know, when we were when we were young and and dumb uh, uh, and thinking about our <laughs> don't finish that sentence <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about, uh, you know, our, our trajectories in life. I think we both had dalliances um, with the, the think tank world. Right. Because we thought that this is the only space where you can do this kind of intellectual work, where you can essentially have a profession um, where your job is to read about and think about the world and and pontificate on it and comment on it, right? But, you know, my application to the Brookings Institution was weeded out as soon as they saw my tweets. <laughs> <laughs> so now here we all are with our Patreons. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a great place uh, to wrap up this free episode of TMK. And, you know, speaking of Patreon, um, I want to throw it over to Riley for, for all the requisite plugs for Trash Future. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, if, you, if you haven't heard uh, Trash Future, come check us out. Um, you can listen to the episodes uh, Nutflix Part 1 and Nutflix Part 2, which we unlocked around Christmas, which we did with uh, Ed and Jathan, all about how Netflix works and um, it's psycho corporate culture. And I think you might enjoy that a lot more discussion of like how um, zero interest works in there as well. So do please give that a go. Yeah. Those were excellent, fun episodes. Great. If you're not already listening to trash future, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? The, the, <laughs> the, the Netflix uh, part one and two is a great entry point into that. And, and I'm, I will say as well that trash future for me, at least was definitely a major inspiration for us starting TMK. Um, yeah, so definitely. there's definitely the TF TMK handshake meme is in full effect <laughs> right here. For us, uh, yeah, I mean, Riley's going to join us in the premium episode where we're going to get even deeper into uh, these earlier generations of thought leaders, of tech intellectuals. And you can find that on patreon.com slash thismachinekills uh, and, and join us later in the week for that. And um, until then, we will see y'all later. Adios. Rock and roll.
It's a shame. Kill. Kill.